0: It's not every day that you get to sit down and speak with a legend in your industry, but I had that opportunity today. I spoke with Arthur Hayes, the creator of the Perpetual Swap, which is arguably the most innovative and important product in the history of crypto trading, and also a man whose long form blog posts have become canon for anybody who studies and is interested in the crypto space. You do not want to miss this epic conversation with Arthur Hayes. let I've always wanted to have a conversation with you because for a number of reasons, but the perpetual swap is arguably the most innovative and impactful invention in the history of crypto trading. And effectively you invented it, right? What was the thinking behind that and how did that come about?
1: Um, So basically back in the day, we used to, me and my co-founders answered every single support ticket and, you know, This is before Bitcoin derivatives trading was a thing. Everybody was used to trading on spot, trading margin, those sorts of things. And we would get a lot of support tickets by clients who were confused um, about some of the, the ways that the platform operated. Specifically, like what happens when a futures contract expires? We would get a lot of support tickets of people who were upset because they thought that something was wrong with the platform, but why the position disappeared on a particular day. And then we you know point them to the documentation and explain to them, you know, this is what happens when the futures contract expires, that's what that expiry date means. After that date, you no know, longer we'll have a position. If you'd like to have a position, then you need to re-enter, re-enter the market. And we kept getting those sorts of questions over and over and over again. And another common uh, confusion that a lot of clients had was okay, why does the futures contract price differ from the spot market? And then you'd have to go into covered interest rate parity, um, the differential of interest rates between two different currencies, time value of money, triangular arbitrage, you know, all these sorts of things that you need to understand to understand why uh, a futures contract, especially on a currency pair, price is different than the spot price. And again, that, that was a lot of information for a lot of our clients and they didn't really understand it. And as such, they preferred trading on margin because that's very easy okay i borrow some money from somebody and i go long or i go short and i go long and i go short at the price of the instrument in, in the spot market so it's just like trading spot bitcoin because it is you're trading on the same order book so we had this question amongst us like hey can we create a futures contract that never expires because that would solve a lot of these issues number one we have all these different futures contracts you know quarterly, you know, the the March, the June, the SEP, the DEC, right? And that's splitting liquidity across all these different contracts. Wouldn't it be great to have liquidity in one contract? And, you know, back in 2016, when we created this thing, we were the underdogs. We didn't have that much liquidity or open interest in our derivatives markets versus our, you know, much more successful Chinese competitors. So we didn't want to split liquidity. Shitty liquidity across four products is, you know, (laughs) not a good thing. So we're like, okay, let's, how do we combine liquidity? How do we make it easier for customers to understand? Because we didn't have a margin trading platform um, for people to graduate from. We didn't have a spot trading um, offering. We just had derivatives. So you literally had to, guess, if you wanted to trade a derivative, you came here, but the, all the other stuff we didn't have. So we, it's not like we could bring traders on a journey through our different, you know, easy stuff of just buying spot Bitcoin to using margin to doing derivatives. So we had to create a very understandable, easy product for them right out the gate. And then it's like, okay, how do we cut down on our support load? There's only three of us answering these questions and we're getting the same ones. So as any good technology company should do, you use technology to remove humans from the process. So what can we do? Uh, So we, you know, we thought about it, we thought about it. And the first iteration of the product was, okay, let's create this, um, swap. It's essentially a swap between Bitcoin and, and US dollar. It's synthetic because there's not actually movement of any cash flows between either side. And back then, the key interest rate was the Bitcoin and the U.S. dollar rate on the Bitfinex uh, peer-to-peer lending markets. So we'd say we would take that rate from Bitfinex and we'd use that to determine uh, how much interest each side would pay each other, right? And the thinking was, okay, if Bitcoin's in a bull market, then U.S. dollars are very expensive because people want to borrow them and they want to speculate on Bitcoin. Therefore, the rate on Bitfinex should rise. And if the someone's going long, the perpetual they should pay more funding to the person going short to keep the market in line and make it expensive for people to go uh, to go in the pro cyclical uh, direction of the market. Right? You pay more as a long. You pay money when the market's rising. If you're short, you pay money when the market's falling. And you know this is back in May 2016 when we launched this product, and the price of Bitcoin was you know going up very very quickly. And the problem was that the interest rate on Bifinex was not enough to deter people from taking the other side of, of the trade. So the longs, but yeah, I guess it to keep going long and, and, the, and the price of this instrument just getting get pushed at a higher and higher and higher premium to the underlying spot price of Bitcoin, which meant that the product was not doing very well and was failing. And so you know, the idea that I had was, okay, the Bitfinex rate is not responsive enough to the conditions of the market. What if we did a look back and we said, okay, we're gonna track the premium or discount of the perpetual swap over the our index, our, our cash index for Bitcoin. And then we're going to say, okay, for the next period, longs or shorts pay each other, depending on what that uh, historical premium was. And that seemed to work. And then all of a sudden the interest rates got really expensive for some periods and that you know, deterred people from taking that position. Or certain people couldn't afford the funding based on their margin requirements and you know, they had to close before they got liquidated. And so we all of a sudden we saw, okay, our markets are starting to look normal. The, the, the perpetual swap is starting to look like the spot market. It's behaving as we, you know, the intention of what we did to develop this product. So that was kind of like, you know, how we sort of got to where it is pretty much today of what this product is.
0: If you've been following me for the last few months, then you definitely know that I've been trading and investing on BitGet. Now listen, it took me six months to decide that they were going to be the sponsor for the newsletter. But once I saw their partnership with Juventus, that they were the world's leading copy trading platform in crypto, and also that they're a top five exchange by volume, well, I was sold and I was convinced. And I've been using it ever since to dollar cost average and to invest in Bitcoin. You can also trade there with leverage, but of course, be careful if you're gonna do that. And I don't know if you saw the recent news, but they've also done a deal with Lionel Messi.
1: A perfect
0: now, you can get up to an $8,000 bonus using my link below, and you can trade spot with absolutely no fees. You also get a 15% discount on trading leverage. Go ahead and sign up right now using thewolfofallstreets.info slash BitGet. Claim that huge reward and use the world's best trading platform. Right, and that's the product that effectively every single... Exchange that offers any sort of leverage is utilizing for the core of all of their trading, and that's what the customers are coming for. I mean, that must be quite a feeling to see something that you invented become effectively the industry standard.
1: Yeah, it's great. And as someone who loves derivatives and has studying financial markets, you know, for my entire professional career, it's it's great to be up there with you know individuals who've created you know products that everybody trades. Right? Everybody wants to be like. You know, the old school J.P. Morgan people who created the credit derivatives markets or, you know, you know Myron Scholes and those guys in the 60s and 70s who created options pricing. And so, yeah, it's pretty cool.
0: So why don't we see perpetual swaps in legacy markets? It seems like a much more efficient way to actually trade than what we have uh, currently.
1: Change is hard. You know, if, you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're an organization and this, this product has been working for the last, you know, 50, 60 years why are you gonna you know take some crypto product and then you know try to shoehorn it into how are you to define things and as we know like traditional tradfi markets are very big on classifications of labels and if it doesn't fit inside the box then you can't do it right and so I think it be it's a big mental stretch for uh, a market so you know, we're, we're no longer doing quarterly futures contracts going on for two years we're gonna collapse all that into this perpetual swap thingy and guess where it came from it came from the crypto markets everybody. And they' like what are you guys thinking like we were better than crypto. This is real finance. Like those guys are retards. Like, so that I, I think <laughs> just not going to happen.
0: Well, we've been giving them a lot of fuel to the fire to believe that we are all that. At the moment, <laughs> I would say like we're at a, at a, the depth of the deepest possible valley for perception <laughs> of crypto, which obviously leads to the next question. Just generally, where do you think we are with this market? I mean, my my argument is that we're somewhat bottoming. I think we would have bottomed if not for FTX, but... Feels like we have some serious uh, depths of despair here, and negative sentiment, and stories that Bitcoin is going to zero, and that crypto is dead. Kind of my favorite uh, bottom signals.
1: Yeah, absolutely, I, I think we are in in the, in the bottom stages. And if we take a step back, and we take a look at why we went up so high, right? We took a I don't know, four or five hundred billion dollar market cap asset, and went up to what one and a half trillion, two trillion at the top in terms of, of Bitcoin. In a span of you know a year, why did that happen? Well, you know the biggest economy in the world printed the most money that they've ever done since World War II to you know fight the COVID pandemic, and so and obviously a lot of that in, a lot of that money flowed into crypto. So if you have the largest ever you know misallocation of credit since you know a global world war for you know for a pandemic, and some people argue that was completely unnecessary, then the excesses that it produced have to be unwound. And those excesses contributed to the behavior of, you know, Sam Dickman and Freed at FTX, you know, Kyle and Sue at Three Euros, all of the centralized lending platforms that are basically all bankrupt or insolvent. Um, they all were able to achieve this outsized quote unquote success because they were riding on the back of the most amount of free money in the reserve asset by the largest economy ever seen since you know the last global war and us wasn't even the reserve currency back then when they printed so much money. and so i think that it's very sad that all these things happened. um obviously you know the possibly some fraud or theft or all sorts of you know bad stuff maybe. that happened. we'll see. Maybe uh, possibly. not for me to be. say
0: <laughs> not me saying <laughs> it
1: <but> maybe uh, <laughs> and but at the end of the day like why why was how were we allowed to borrow not allowed why would somebody lend three arrows a billion dollars in the collateral? Like I don't care what they told you; it doesn't matter. Like you should never do. You should never do that. You should ask for something, at least, right? Um, why was SBF able to put on this you know dog and pony show and con people as effectively as it was? Yes, he fit all the right characteristics, and I laid those out in my essay: white boy. But at the other end of the spectrum, if you've got a bunch of money and you're an institutional money manager, you'll get paid unless you spend it. So you spend it on the thing that looks like the thing, that you won't lose your job at the end of the day. No one's going to lose a job because they allocated to SBF. Maybe they will this time, but I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. believe so. <laughs> they wouldn't have. So, and, and, so I guess that that's the thing. And yeah, there's there's the bad side of crypto, but it was fueled by a lot of money printing. And you know, we've washed a lot of that out. So obviously, subsequently to the print together most money. Since World War II, we've also tightened financial positions the fastest probably since you know Volcker in the 1980s. So we've gone to the other extreme. Oh, well, guess what happened? We bankrupted all these business models that should never have existed in the first place. I haven't fully really come to terms with whether or not I think centralized lending in the TradFi format actually works in a bare asset like crypto, where you don't have a lot of the, the legal protections that you have in a TradFi system because those are part and parcel of the system itself. The whole point of crypto is that we don't need a legal system. We have, you know, auditable blockchain code. Does that mean that we can allocate credit in the same way and use the same sort of underwriting standards? I don't know. Obviously, the track record is not so great at the moment. But looking forward, pretty much everyone who could go bankrupt has gone bankrupt. Like the largest exchanges, the largest centralized lenders. And they've all sold. What do they sell? They sold Bitcoin and ETH. And what's left on the balance sheet? Dog shit shit coin that is super liquid that they created out of thin them. air and they you can't and do they, and you, and you get hell of it. So it's, I think the thing that everyone, you look at the balance sheet of Alameda, there's no Bitcoin on it. You Look at the balance sheet of any of these, of three euros, there's no Bitcoin on it. Because what do they do? They sold the Bitcoin as they were going bankrupt. They sold the Bitcoin during the wave before they went bankrupt. Now they're bankrupt. And now the court has to decide how do I split up all these illiquid shit coins that have no have no use case probably, and maybe we'll never have a market cap to support you know anything in the future. So that to me tells me that at least Bitcoin, which is the reserve asset of crypto, is doing what it should do. It's it's you know liquidated first because it's the most pristine asset and the most liquid, and therefore it's going to lead us out of this uh, bottom in the first two. And obviously the shit coins that follow, but you know, there's a lot of you know bags held on bankrupt companies who need to liquidate those. But at least for Bitcoin, I'm fairly confident that the largest, most irresponsible um, entities have all had to sell all their Bitcoin to, you know, the diamond hands.
0: As one of the uh, larger Voyager creditors myself, sadly, and, you know, someone, I was friends with their team and, you know, uh, was trading on the platform early. I would like to believe that it's over for CeFi and that nobody makes that mistake again, but I do not have that much faith in humans and their ability to (laughs) FOMO into greed. But to your point, you know, I don't understand giving a $700 million uncollateralized loan in any market, but it probably speaks to the situation that they put themselves in, which is that these platforms grew massively in a short amount of time because of the yield they were offering. And when those yields disappeared, they had to just continue to you know, behave in a more risky manner and continue down that curve to try to even just keep up with the yield that they had offered or lose all of their clients. So it seems like they built a business that could not be sustained unless the bull market never ended. Exactly.
1: And that's, you know, that's the same trade at 3 at the same trade at Alameda that, you know, at some point they said, we make more money if we go long and we're right. Absolutely. The problem is the market also goes down.
0: The thing that kills me about FTX just rationally is like, you know, first of all, the casino always wins to some degree, right? And these are casinos that have high leverage. So you could just wait for retail, obviously eventually going to make bad decisions and rinse. They had knowledge of the order book. They could literally (laughs) sweep people's stops from Alameda and they still went broke. What kind of greed and hubris does it require to not make money in that environment? Like you're the house times 10. Yeah, and
1: you had free loans from the house. And what do you do with the loans? You could've taken the loan and just put them back in the treasuries. And you still would've made, you know, a 4.5% net interest margin of $8 billion. Great, you're crushing it, right? You know, maybe that's unethical, you know, at best. But
0: ethics were on, clearly I, not their uh, principle. <laughs> it's like
1: you could have made so much money in a much, you know, you know, a subwell at night. Sam can eat all cucumbers he wants, and you know, go hang out at the penthouse. But instead, they went along, you know, shit
0: coins. You, you made an interesting point earlier about having to allocate if you're in one of these companies or in in a situation like that. I think one of the untold stories that I've been thinking about, the Andresons and the larger funds, they've raised three and a half, four, five, six billion dollars in crypto venture funds that has to be allocated even in this environment. You can't raise four billion dollars and wait 10 years. Right. So there still has to be a ton of institutional money that's sidelined and waiting to buy, whether it's at these prices or with some turnaround. Maybe that's not Bitcoin, but in the VC space, it seems like there's still billions that have to be allocated right now.
1: Absolutely. I, but I do think that maybe when they make those capital calls that money isn't there, right? So that's just what they signed the term sheet. Now, right, true. the types of persons who could allocate, they might have some real estate losses and fixed income losses. And they're like, you know what, that crypto thing that I told you I was in for like nine months ago, uh, maybe not. Uh, and okay, I'll forfeit the other parts of uh, what you've already invested in. I mean, it doesn't really matter. It's probably gone down 90% anyways, right? So I think that that dry powder that they have might be a little, might be a shimmer when they actually come to call on it. But at the end of the day, like these large shops, you know, they can't be doing deals that are a million dollar. They need to be writing hundred million dollars. checks.
0: And you can't.
1: And to like series, you know, companies in equity rounds are look like they're, you know, they're going to go public at some point. Okay. There's no crypto companies going public anytime soon. Like this is not happening. Okay. Then I'm talking about, you know, some large, big token sales. Well, who's the retail is going to soak up those tokens. They're all bankrupt too, right? So I just don't see how that money gets deployed. Even if you know they, they call the capital and it's there, there's nothing for them to invest in because they're not the types of shops that are going to go around to like these little indie conferences and you know put a fifty dollars check into like a true decentralized protocol that's actually yeah. doing something real. They can't do it. It just doesn't make sense for them. So, you know. That's great for me because I'm a you know just an angel on a lot of stuff and I'm able to trade. You can get twenty five thousand. Yeah, right. But you're not going to find the next Uniswap because you're you know you able to, you're able to allocate ten million dollars into a round. Probably not the type of company that's actually going to be pushing the envelope for for this for this ecosystem.
0: Yeah, people questioned so heavily when Andreessen did the huge investment in Adam Newman's new project after the WeWork failure. And my thinking was, uh, they probably just had to get a couple hundred million dollars and he gave them the opportunity to actually allocate that much in this market. How else are you going to get it in there? Not 10 million at a time, even in, in a VC fund like that outside of crypto. So here's a couple hundred. Why not? Has anything changed in your thinking now for the asset class as a result of this contagion? I mean, you obviously always referred to Bitcoin as the most pristine asset of all time. So I, I I doubt that's the case, but I think a lot of people are conflating problems with the crypto industry with the actual assets themselves. And for us, I think it's easy to separate, but do you think that this has caused any meaningful harm long-term to Ethereum or Bitcoin as assets?
1: No, it's just proven the value prop, right? Given all that's happened, imagine in 2008, right? And you had Lehman Brothers go bankrupt. You had the contagion around every single merchant investment bank. You had AIG. Um, people worry about the actual functioning of the financial system. Like, is the bank going to open? Is the exchange going to open? Because the counterparties went bust on all these interlinked derivatives. Did we do the proper accounting? Even you know what's on their books? Right, so the centralization problem during a credit crisis leads to the implosion of the actual underlying functional system. Nothing like that happened in crypto. Bitcoin blocks, Ethereum blocks, still produced, still still validated. Smart so contracts still worked. Uniswap still worked. I can still send Bitcoin on the network. You know, maybe it was a bit more expensive because there's a lot of stuff going on, but it still worked. Even though the largest, one of the number number two, number three largest exchange. Went bankrupt in three days, and yet everything that actually uses technology works just fine. That would not happen in Tratify. The entire TruFi system would be bankrupt, and we would be talking about, you know, not being able to use the bank. And a similar situation occurred, and um, if you read recently, there's a lawsuit by Elliott uh, to the London Metals Exchange due to the uh, the large nickel position. Um, I think he was called the bitch big shot, some Chinese tycoon who basically tried to corner the nickel market and blew up. And the LME's defense was, hey, we couldn't enforce the rules as written in these contracts and ask for more margin because we were worried about these, you know, the exchange going, many multiple enterprises of the exchange going bankrupt. And that's a systemic financial risk. Therefore, we did the appropriate thing by not giving you what you were owed, Elliot Management, the you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, because you're on the right side of this nickel trade. We're okay. Now imagine if that had happened in crypto, right? Hey, we 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 put out there that we guarantee that we're gonna give you this money, but because everybody's gonna go bankrupt and we're worried about the entire financial system not working, we're not gonna we're not gonna pay out. That's exactly what the trade-by system does. Crypto doesn't do that. Bitcoin doesn't care who which companies come or go, Ethereum doesn't care which companies come or like are there or not there. So that's that's what people have to understand, is that the actual technology, the reason why they got so excited about this in the first place, continued working, no issues. And people just have to be able to discern, like when they're investing in a centralized entity or using a centralized entity, there's nothing wrong with using them. You just have to understand their purpose and what they're there for versus the underlying technology. And obviously, most people never get that distinction. And that's why most people will lose money in these kind of situations. And there'll be those who are achieving right now. And when the next bull market comes around and Bitcoin's at a much higher price than the last bull market, everyone's like, well, why didn't I invest at the bottom? Well, you thought, you know, Alameda was Bitcoin or you thought Genesis, you know, was Ethereum when they're just companies, poorly run, poorly run companies, but just companies.
0: I loved what you called uh, I think it was Genesis Grayscale DCG G, 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 G unit, right? It was a rap DJ. But um but then, obviously then I need to ask about Genesis and Grayscale. Do you see that as a potential next victim of this contagion? Or do you think that uh that's overblown?
1: Right, Genesis is already a victim of they've already shut down withdrawals and whether or not they declare formal bankruptcy or not, like doesn't really matter. Like <laughs> you can't get your money out. Yeah. Like I don't care if it's bankrupt or not. I'm not getting my money out. And then you have to wonder, okay, well, then is GBTC gonna be unwound? I don't think so. I think it's pretty ironclad that thing is there. And so the, the Bitcoin is there, can't get it out. There's no incentive for you know very silver to unwind grayscale because it produces you know few hundred million dollars of free cash flow for doing pretty much nothing every year. So he's just gonna keep it. Whether or not how he you know restructures his corporate empire, I have no idea. Uh, but at the end of the day. The Bitcoin and that trust aren't going anywhere. So I think it's kind of a Genesis sold all the Bitcoin they could have sold to try to stay afloat. It obviously didn't work. You know, if Barry had more Bitcoin to sell, he'd probably be selling it to not have to deal with this sort of issues. So I think, you know, the damage is there. I feel sorry for everybody, anyone who has their money locked in one of those entities. But, you know, for the broader market, it's kind of irrelevant at this point
0: feels like 90% of people in crypto have some money locked somewhere at this point. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just just kind of the way it is. Well, if if Bitcoin is the most pristine asset, then how do you view Ethereum? So
1: Bitcoin is money. Ethereum is a crypto commodity. And so that's my belief system. I know some people are in this Ethereum camp that it's the soundest money, but the use case of Ethereum is the power of the the decentralized computer. And the analogy that I like to give is... Imagine if you're Saudi Arabia, obviously you want the price of oil to be high because you make a lot of money, but they can't be too high, right? Imagine if oil was a billion dollars a barrel, no one would buy any of it. Therefore your oil's worthless. Same thing goes for Ethereum. If it becomes so deflationary at a certain point that the price of Ether is so high and it's fiat value for gas is so expensive, no one's going to use it. And so I think ultimately if we get to this situation where the Ether price goes too expensive, Inflation will have to be introduced back into the system because otherwise it will not fulfill its role as being the commodity that powers a decentralized internet because that's the number one goal of Ethereum. And that's why I believe Ethereum is not money. It's uh, It can act like money, but it's not Bitcoin, which is money. Bitcoin does nothing. It yields you nothing. You can't do anything with it. You can store it. You can send it to people to pay for stuff. And that's it. And that's the feature. And that's why it's, it's there. People like to deride it for that, but okay, cool. You know, gold doesn't do anything either. Guess what? We have, you know, thousands of you know people with guns guarding underground vaults with this worthless with this, you know, inert metal sitting in it. It doesn't do anything, but we think it's worth something. So similar concept for Bitcoin, in my opinion.
0: Well, interestingly though, I think that because of the merge, which I know you were uh, extremely bullish around and I too. It's funny that people have now ceased to be bullish about it just because it's been a few months when we all know it should take many, many months and years to really, really play out. But welcome to the uh, you know sort of memory of a goldfish in, in the crypto space. But that's a hard needle to thread because if it does become particularly deflationary and we get another bull run and people get bullish on it, I think it goes to 10, 20, 30,000. And to your point, then it becomes moot. Does that open the door For other layer ones that are cheaper, faster, even if they're less secure? I mean, is that really their opening to sort of gain some dominance over Ethereum?
1: I mean, I am i wouldn't call myself an Ethereum maxi because I think there's some philosophical issues that they have to solve in the next bull run. But I think all these other like Ethereum killer L1s, yes, they could be on paper, faster, whatever, right? It doesn't matter. Every cycle has a particular flavor of L1 that's supposed to be Ethereum. This per this, this cycle it was the the, the soul cycle, right? And yes, there was lots of you know <clears throat> ways in which Alameda and FTX influenced that. But at the end of the day, the zeitgeist was okay. Ethereum's slow. This thing's fast. It's the new thing on the block. This thing is three dollars. Ethereum's you know fifteen hundred, two thousand, whatever it is, right? This thing a moon, and you can do all the extrapolations, right? It's the the nominal price fallacy. Let's people flood into these assets. And every cycle, there's going to be one. I don't know what the next flavor of L1, what's you know, proof of what that is going to say, oh, this is the new way to do it. This is the better way than proof of stake or proof of work or proof of time or proof of block, or whatever the fuck they come up with. It doesn't really matter. There'll be some promoter who's got a nice looking, you know, pitch deck, who's backed by the right VCs who they think people think supposedly know something about crypto, and this single moon. I hope I find out which one that is and I get in on it. Me too.
0: But, <laughs> Let but me know. It won't be
1: anyone that. But it won't be. But it won't be something from the last cycle because you know if you look at how many developers are in any of these projects other than Ethereum, it's like a few handful, maybe a hundred. That's not how you build a real ecosystem. If I'm if I'm a talented developer, I want to go where my application is going to be used the most. Where is my application going to be used the most? The Ethereum network. Okay, well, maybe if Aptos or Solana or you know Cosmos has a bunch of treasury money to hand out, I'll build something on there. But what am I building? I'm building a clone of Uniswap. I'm building a clone of Compound. Am I building anything actually new? Am I building any real new primitives? Absolutely not. I'm doing nothing. I'm me too. Again, you can make a lot of money in me too, but it's not going to make money in the next cycle because we've moved on. We saw that that was worthless and they didn't have any actual adoption. And so what's the new thing that we can get excited about? And we can go, then it can go from a few cents to a few hundred dollars. That's what I want to figure out.
0: We might get some pushback if we call this uh, podcast hashtag me too with, with Arthur Hayes, but uh, I think it would be kind of a compelling title now that you said it honestly. Uh, And you said that you have some philosophical concerns with Ethereum that would need to be corrected in the next bull cycle. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes. You have the, the issues that Ethereum has with the centralization of validators, right? And, you know, a set of validators have to adhere to some you know domestic legal issue legal rules that go contrary to an open blockchain processing all the valid transactions then you haven't really accomplished much and to the extent that there's some you know very transformative application that some particular you know entity doesn't like and they're able to inf- influence the way that blocks are validated then the ethereum blockchain is worthless but again we're humans we don't really we see it in front of us we see you know there's three entities that control it 50 or 60% of the, the hashing rate and they're all, they're all subject to, to U.S. rules and regulations. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, per, p- people make a lot of money in Web2 that is predicated on a particular legal, legal system. The issue is if we're really trying to build an open, transparent global network, is one country having, you know, uh, a larger state than others really accomplish that goal? If so, then why don't I just go invest in a stock in, you know, in the U.S. or China or any other countries? Why even deal with having an Ethereum blockchain? It's expensive. It's slow. It has all these issues, right? I'd rather just go buy the NASDAQ. I'd probably make a better return. Um, and so I think that won't be clear to people until we see um, a real popular application that's, unle- that's at some point not able to be used because some entity says no, and the network has to decide what they're going to do. So I'm still long Ether, at, you know, from now until the next cycle. But, you know, I hope to be out of Ether before that happens, in the B- back into Bitcoin, um, well before the market starts to actually, you know, question what's going on.
0: It's funny because there's always that cycle, even the back, you would almost call yourself an Ethereum maximalist, but in the back of your head, it's when am I going back to Bitcoin? Bitcoin maxis are going to love that, by the way. <laughs> 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 but it is true. It, even on a longer time frame, it seems that... It, always comes back to Bitcoin one way or another in this market.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, Bitcoin's volatile, right? It goes down and it goes up. But, you know, But My my whole thesis of my portfolio is I'm trying to save money in a constant form of energy. Bitcoin is pure energy. I burn electricity to mine Bitcoin, and that is how I make Bitcoin. And so to me, Bitcoin is the purest form of energy ever created, and I want to save in energy. Um, that's all I care
0: about. You alluded to the fact that we're building a parallel global financial system, even a superior global financial system. How do we do that if every time we uh, create a bridge, it gets hacked, exploited, every protocol seems to get drained? Seems like we've still got some major technological uh, problems to solve ahead of us.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the no railroads, you know. work the first time automobiles planes anything anything doesn't work the first time it takes a while for the technology to to diffuse okay maybe we've gotten a little bit corrupted because we think everything's a 90-second tiktok video and you know progress should happen immediately and not take time but you know we're only you know slightly more than a decade into the largest social and financial experiment we've probably ever done uh, as humankind and to expect that it's all going to work perfectly and it's going to be this, you know, perfect solution for, you know, a track price system that works for a large number of people. It just doesn't work for a larger number of people. And, you know, in my view, all we're doing is building a choice, right? You can go walk down to the branch and go visit your large, it's too big to fail bank and put your money in there. That's fine. Or you can use an online wallet and transfer crypto. Each one has pros and cons. And depending on who you are in the situation in your life, you'll choose one or the other. Um, But, at least with our system, we're not forcing anyone to use it. It's a pure voluntary participation in the economy.
0: And there are plenty of places in the world where people don't actually even have access to the system that exists anyways and are going to be somewhat forced into DeFi and crypto regardless. Exactly. I think that applies down to every single person who invests in trades in any single market. And you probably just described why people are so bad at trading, right? Because they would rather be right than be profitable.
1: Yeah. Or they want to invest in the right things like with everyone else, because you don't want to feel you don't want to be talking about, I don't know, nuclear waste facilities after Chernobyl at the cocktail party, right? So <laughs> when in, you know when in actual sense it's probably the best time to invest in them because no one else wants to touch them. So it's it's a similar sort of phenomenon, right? You know, all the people who believe these you know economist articles and, and Barron's covers of like Bitcoin going to zero and they can, you know, wag their fingers at people at the cocktail party and, and, and look, you know, look all smart and stuff. And then you have the person in the corner cowering, like, I don't want to admit that, you know, I guess, you know, put a million dollars in a Bitcoin at, you know, 50500 right? It's, it's that kind of fear. You know, we don't, we fear the social rejection more than we want to make money.
0: Damn, we're Chernobyl now. That's wild. Bitcoin is, is now, that would make a good podcast title as well. But I mean, you have pretty intimate knowledge, I think, of the way that people trade and interact with markets, obviously, from running an exchange and creating one for so long. I mean, do you think that that is the principal reason that people are willing to you know, move their stop loss or refuse to take profit is just that willingness to be right or that fear of being wrong? Because that's not even playing out in public. That's a very insular, personal thing, right? That's uh, admitting you were wrong to yourself, not even at the cocktail party.
1: Well, I think the issue with lots of creators is that they are looking for the get rich quick button. And that manifested itself in, oh, very, let's you know, very timely example. Um, Anchor is paying 20% interest. I get zero at the bank. Hey, if I if I put $10,000 and I compounded at 20% over a few years, look at how fast I'm going to double, triple, quadruple my money. This thing's amazing. I'm putting everything in this because it's going to make me rich faster than even working my job right and we all know in the background that ne- nothing ever is there's no easy button in life there is no get rich quick there's outliers and they're trumpeted in the media and made it and you know put forward to make you think that you should be doing some you know not smart activity but at the end of the day there is no easy button life is hard hard work pays off it takes time there's no there's no easy solution and a lot of traders think that if i apply leverage and you know, I trade well or I do this and do that, I don't sit back and be disciplined about my craft, that all of a sudden I'm going to be driving, going from a Toyota Corolla to a Lambo in a week. And it just doesn't happen like that. And so I think that's the issue, is a lack of patience, the lack of dedication to a craft. I, I always like, tell people, hey, you want to be a, a day trader? Okay, you're gonna have your phone on all day. Um, you are gonna be looking at your screen all day. You need to know every single flow uh, in the market. The timing when the miners sell like which exchanges go from where uh what is the open interest of a particular product you know how the different time zones trade like these are all the things the details that you have to understand if you want to be a speculator most people think now i'm just going to sit down on the computer yeah i read some online magazine or something about trading and i'm going to click a few buttons and i'm going to make more money than if i you know did a you know 40 hour job and this is not the case
0: so Traders should approach it as a 100-hour week job. It's like, I I quit my 40-hour week job to become a trader for a better life, and then you're literally at a screen like 100 hours a week. But what you just described, I would say 99% of people who trade with leverage on crypto exchanges have never even heard of 50% of the concepts that you just said. They know support and resistance on a chart and probably know what MACD and RSI are, maybe, right? So they're not doing the requisite work, which means it's inevitable that they're going to lose money, right?
1: Yeah, you have to do the work. It doesn't matter, like, anyone that you admire in any sort of pursuit has done, what is it, the 10,000-hour theory, right? They've done the work, right? If you're a trader, are you have you read all of the canon of, of traders? Do you know where these products came from, like the fundamental you know, stuff behind them? Obviously, there's some completely speculative stuff, but as with everything, there's always a, a predecessor of which you've iterated upon. And if you don't understand that, then how are you going to understand why this is different or not different uh, than the past. And so I think most people just don't want to put in the work. Uh, and therefore, they get the results like everyone else, which is over time, you lose
0: money. And you created these high leverage products in crypto. Do you think that there's, and I mean, obviously, people should be able to do whatever they want. But do you think that there's a necessity for 100x leverage in crypto on volatile assets? Or is that something you just offered it because there was demand for it?
1: I'd say most people don't even use that much leverage, thankfully. Um, But at the end of the day, the one good thing about leverage, and we're seeing this now, is that you don't have to keep that much money on the exchange. And so if you use it correctly, it's almost as if it's a short-term option. Okay, I can put this 100% leverage trade on. I know that the maximum I can lose is this. I know that my maximum exposure to the exchange is Y, and I'm comfortable with that. And so I can put this trade on knowing, going into it, what my, my uh, loss is. And I can keep the rest of my funds in cold storage and, and whatnot. So yes, some people like to make these sensationalist arguments about the high leverage. But if, you know, in a crypto environment where you have exchanges like FTX going bankrupt in two days, then it does make sense to limit your exposure. And, you know, I'm always out there saying, like, hey, an exchange is for trading on. It's not your wallet. You know, it's not there to hold your funds. Face a trade, do what you need to do, get your money off, uh, put in, you know, use the technology that's supposed to be used. This is about financial freedom. It's not about trusting centralized entities with your, your crypto.
0: So leverage is eff- effectively about counterparty, risk. And, counterparty I mean, risk. and of course, people, you said sensationalize the 100x leverage, but if your stop loss on your trade was going to be less than 1% away from your entry, that it literally doesn't matter how much leverage yeah. you use, right? <laughs> Yeah, I I think people obviously complicate that. And now I think we're seeing a return, at least uh, during this phase, I'm not confident it will last in the ethos of not your keys, not your coins and people really taking their coins off of exchanges, these massive outflows. Do you think that that will last? And do you think that exchanges actually should even be viewed at all or be allowed to be your bank or your custodian? Or do you think there should be some Chinese walls there that really separate those roles and take the coins off the exchange in the first place?
1: I mean, I guess the whole point of of this ecosystem is for you to be an adult, right? And so the exchange is not there to tell you what you should or shouldn't be doing with your funds. The exchange is there to say, if you deposit one Bitcoin, that one Bitcoin is there. You can use it as margin. The exchange is not going to go out and, you know, buy stuff with it. Um, You know, as Sam Banker-Free famously said, and then delete it, FTX doesn't even invest their client deposits in US treasuries. Okay. Whatever. Um, yeah, so you you shouldn't be doing that. Well, if you have Bitcoin, you just stay in a wallet and and that's it. I mean, you know, uh, obviously, some exchanges have done like proof of reserves and proof of liabilities, uh, those sorts of things. um and the beauty of the transparency of like cryptographic assets is that we can do these things in real time. It's not as if I need to trust uh, a statement from some too big to fail bank on their quarterly financial statement as to what they did. Um, over the last three months that they goal seat on the last day of recording, which we know they do. They call it window dressing. It's a, it's a concept that exists all the time, right? And so I think there is this transparency of the blockchain if we choose to look at it, if we choose to demand it from the exchanges. But as you pointed out, usually what happens is, you know, for three to six months, everybody's clamoring for this these things. And then as the market stabilizes and, you know, starts going up again, we forget all about that. And it's all about like what's the new product, you know, you know, how can I get more leverage? How can I get more free money? Um, where can I borrow money at to get along this market? Uh, and all the other concerns go out the window. So I hope that people take this to heart and you know, use a ledger or use another one of these hardware wallets and, and keep the majority of their funds in cold storage and their control. But I'm not, you know, history has proven me otherwise that the uh the cares of the average person change quite quickly as soon as they forget about this
0: people are making the same mistakes for literally hundreds of years and repeating cycles so i don't think it's going to change much this time but we do have cycles obviously and we could arguably say that we're at the very depths of a bearish cycle here in the crypto market what do you think comes next i'm not asking for price predictions tied to time but in general i mean do you think that we remain somewhat correlated to the stock market? Do you think it's all about money printing and stimulus? Or do you think that Bitcoin can once again decorrelate and rise in the face of a global economic crisis? Where do you stand on what's what's coming?
1: So I'd say next year sometime, I, I believe that the Fed is going to have to pivot. And that's mainly due to the fact that I believe that the treasury market and probably the investment-grade corporate bond market are going to become dysfunctional. What do I mean by that? Um, you have a bunch of supply with no buyers. The Fed's not buying, the Treasury is not buying. They're actually issuing paper. All large foreign uh, non-U.S. governments are mostly net sellers of Treasuries. So that would be you know Japan and China. If you see accelerating more deals of Middle Eastern countries selling their oil not in dollars, that also leads to less recycling of dollars, less purchases of Treasuries. And yet, at the same time, you have all-time high issuances of debt because, again, you know the baby boomers in the U.S. are aging. They have entitlements, Social Security, Medicare. You have increased spending on defense. Who knows what this Russian-Ukraine conflict is going to lead to. Um, even if you know the war ended today, I still believe that the defense industry is going to be pushing for more preparedness in the future wars, which means more spending, uh, more uh, government borrowing, and then you know you possibly have a, a recession. Uh, the what is it? The three-month ten-year spread that a lot of economists believe is the true recession indicator has turned negative, uh, and which basically means that the treasury market is telling us that there's going to be a recession next year. So, what does the government do in, in a recessionary environment? They need to issue more money to you know provide that social safety net. Now, obviously, most countries can't do this. The U.S. can because it prints the global reserve currency, but. They're the ones that are going to determine global dollar liquidity, which is what matters. So I think sometime next year, you know, the politics of the treasury market and the corporate bond market are going to to dictate that the Fed um, at a minimum minimum pauses uh, at a maximum starts um, adding uh, dollars back into the market. And that's going to obviously be positive for all risk assets, especially Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the last free market in the world. And so therefore, it should um, pre-trade that happening. You'll see Bitcoin rise before the S&P does. And, and I think that's we stay correlated for this cycle. And then the next cycle, I believe, is you know generational collapse uh, and something, you know, hopefully not as bad as the 1930s, but, you know, depression-like. Because if the Fed has to, you know, resume printing within a year of the largest sovereign debt bubble in the history of human civilization, then the next time there's a crisis, it's going to be the big one, uh, the one where we actually have really, really high nominal rates on a lot of these um, large government bond markets. And then the question is can Bitcoin outperform with a 10 year percent treasury and and really high inflation? That's what we're going to. Do. Because inflation moves in waves. Okay, yes, we could go from seven and a half on the CPI down to three percent, but the next wave up is going to be 10%, 12%. That's what happened in the 70s. It's not this like linear relationship. Um it's not uh this you know, this simple system. We don't know how to understand what inflation is, but everyone experiences it differently. And it definitely isn't over once you've already crossed this, this Rubicon. So I, I think that Bitcoin and dollar markets are correlated up You 2024-25. Know, then we move massively lower. And then the question is can Bitcoin perform in a very, very high nominal rate and high inflationary environment? And that's the real test uh, of the, of this asset. Because then if it just goes down another 95%, like every other asset, when you have entrenched inflation, of you know, 10 to 20%, then have you really done anything? Has this technology really proven anything? So I think that's the test.
0: Can they get inflation back down to targets 2 3% before they're forced to pivot? Seems like that's highly unlikely. Maybe,
1: I don't know. Highly unlikely. I mean, the, the forces that are structural, the, the underinvestment in energy has been happening for almost, you know, 30 years. You don't all of a sudden reverse it in a year um you don't all of a sudden like oh we're going to transition to green economy and starting this you know this song and dance like you know 15 20 years ago and think that you're all of a sudden going to get oil is just going to come out of the ground and you're going to recover capex spending back to the levels to to have enough demand enough oil for for the increasing demand you don't you know destroy some of the most you know productive farmland in the world and you know in eastern europe and then all of a sudden, three years later, you know, global crop crop yields are are back to are back to where they were. It's just it's just fallacy thinking. It's you know, it's people don't do the math. They don't think longer than like ninety seconds on the TikTok videos, and that's where we're in this situation. So, and the politicians follow suit. And so, I think that's sort of my prognosis. And it's an open question of whether or not Bitcoin can be that asset in a true systematic reset, which I believe is is coming, but not you know in, the, in probably the next
0: 5 years. You talked about uh, defense spending earlier. Did you see the recent story that the defense department uh, failed their I believe fifth consecutive audit basically every audit they've ever had and were only able to account for like 39% of their assets. Basically there's trillions of dollars missing from the balance sheet of the defense department and they continue to raise their investments it's insane.
1: And every other country is gonna do the same thing. I mean, maybe they want I don't know the audits of other countries, but um at the end of the day, everybody's spending more on defense. Um and so it's there's only there's only so many humans to produce so many goods. And so again, the government will crowd out. All across the world. And it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. It's, it's an every country phenomenon. Everybody is restoring production to add resiliency to those supply chains. Everybody wants to be prepared for, you know, you know a global conflict. Hopefully, hopefully we don't have one. And therefore, everybody's trying to stimulate at the same time. And it just, it just isn't going to work.
0: Yeah, that's a vicious and dangerous cycle for sure. You talked about before taking 10,000 hours to become a master of something. It seems like you've spent 10,000 hours writing your blog uh, because every time I read one, I'm like, damn, I'm like 35 minutes in and I'm still I'm still reading this thing. What what inspires you before we go to, you know, write these long form blog posts largely on the crypto market, but obviously on other things? And is that something that we can look forward to continuing to do?
1: Yeah, there's a very, I, mean, I like global macro. I, I manage my own money because I like to, it's fun. And at the end of the day, like I'm writing about stuff that I'm asking myself these questions. And if I could put out a very coherent, long form essay and explain a point of view, and it makes sense, then okay, that idea that I have for my portfolio makes sense. You know, The positioning that I have for my asset allocation makes sense. There's been times when I've been writing an essay on an idea I'll get done and I'll be like, oh, this doesn't sound so good. Like <laughs> I shouldn't have that trade on. And then I'll go and I'll liquidate everything and I'll bend the article. But that that's like, it's very cathartic for me. I enjoy it. And then also I enjoy the fact that people enjoy reading them uh, and uh, to nice get said. the opinion out there. And obviously, you know, you want to be like a virus for, for the Lord Satoshi and bring forth the message of the good word to the people.
0: Well, you're doing a great job of it. Where can everybody uh, follow you after this and then check out, of course, your blog and everything you're doing? Sure,
1: I'm on Twitter at, at @crypto_haze, uh, and my Medium is again at crypto_haze as well. And articles come out, you know, a few times a month depending on what's going on. And I, you know, I hope and I appreciate the feedback that people give as well.
0: Yeah, I love the fact that it's sort of like due diligence, for your own ideas that you're sort of vomited out on paper. I do the same thing, and then actually makes you think through the process. So it's it's interesting for us to be able to share the thought process you're going through, and I hope that you uh, definitely continue to do it, man. Thank you so much for for taking the time to to do this interview really appreciate it incredible insight thank
1: you